These are the words of Senator Jay Rockefeller from West Virginia, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee Chairman. All the apps folks, not just the big ones, but the little ones that just may have three or four people, but there's still, there are hundreds of thousands of them that are pumping out uh, apps. They're totally unregulated. And so the question is, what do, what do we do about that? Uh, or what do you do about that? Or do you want us to do something about that? They have to be regulated. Apps have to be regulated. What do you think Jay Rockefeller means by that? And do you think he actually understands the app ecosystem? Well, today, hopefully, we're going to focus on some issues that might actually impact your life that you might not know anything about. Right now on .NET Rocks. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Richard isn't joining me for this show. It's a kind of a special show all about my experiences in Washington, D.C. for the ACT Fly-In. And I'll tell you all about that in a minute. But first, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those that are on our show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, totaling 200 minutes of access to their vast training library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Jonathan Zook is the president of ACT, the Association for Competitive Technology based in Washington, D.C. ACT is made up of technology people like you and me, mostly small businesses, and their goal is to educate lawmakers in Washington about how technology actually works, so hopefully they can avoid some of the problems that they've created in the past with bad legislation. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Washington, D.C. for what they call a fly-in. A bunch of technologists come in for the weekend, and on Monday, they sit around and discuss the issues. And on Tuesday, they get to meet with the lawmakers, the senators, the congressmen, and educate them about what's going on in this business. The word lobbyist is a pejorative. Jonathan Zook knows that, but he also sets himself apart from generic lobbyists. You know, the hired guns that contribute to campaigns in return for a vote on this or that. So my agenda really is to make sure that uh, technologists, and in particular small business owners, are heard in Washington, because very often their voices are drowned out in Washington, which is sort of counterintuitive given their importance to the economy overall. And so somehow reflecting that importance that we understand statistically, but making it a part of the story that gets told in Washington is critical. I asked Jonathan what made him decide to give up being a productive member of society as a software developer and get into politics. Surprisingly, he equates the work he's doing to jury duty, one of the obligations that we as U.S. citizens tend to avoid at all costs, if possible. 
The aha moment came to him while sitting on a jury. During a testimony of an orthopedic surgeon, the juror next to me, she leans over and she said, you know, I'm really not following this. I'm just going to vote how you'd vote. And I'm like, okay. And I was so freaked out by that, I determined I'm never going to try to avoid jury duty again. And I sort of feel the same way about public policy. If technologists don't participate in the creation of public policy, then public policy will be created by non-technologists. It seems obvious when you say it that way, but if you want good policy, you had to be a part of delivering a message so that people better understand the decisions that they're making. Did you get that? He's basically saying that the people in Washington are making decisions that affect our lives. And isn't it scary to think that they would be so uninformed as to vote just how their buddies vote? It's naive for us to think that lawmakers will understand technology and the impact it has on the economy as well as our daily lives. I was surprised to learn that government is just now getting a handle on agriculture policy. And that took a hundred years for Congress to become experts on agriculture. Agriculture. The idea that they could be experts on technology quickly is, is ludicrous. We're technologists and we struggle seven days a week to stay up to date on the things that we do. So we need to make sure that we boil things down, make them simple to understand, tell stories that are relevant so that lawmakers can really develop policy, not in a vacuum, but in the context of the role the technology is playing for their children, for their families. It's an old story at ACT. The government's lack of understanding about technology can produce serious unintended consequences for innocent bystanders. Joe Homnick runs a small business in Boca Raton, Florida, training and mentoring developers and writing apps. Joe told me what happened in January 2012 when the FBI shut down Mega Uploads, a well-known website that promotes copyright infringement by offering a safe place to trade pirated digital content. We're located in Boca Raton, Florida, a little north of Miami. They went into Miami, shut down the Cogent Center that was hosting all of their data. Well, when they shut down Cogent, they shut down everybody else that was hosting their data They shut down Boca Raton because it was right along the pipeline. And we were down for a day and a half. We're doing a lot of private cloud stuff. Cost us a lot of money. So the agenda of ACT isn't to be pro-Microsoft or anti-Google or to bang a drum about this company or that company. The agenda is to make sure broad-reaching laws don't get passed that are well-intentioned, but may produce results that strangle small business and consumers alike, most of which could be avoided if the lawmakers could only foresee all of the outcomes of their actions, or at least more of them. Andrew Brust has worked in the software industry for 25 years as a developer, consultant, entrepreneur, and CTO, specializing in application development, databases, and business intelligence technology. Andrew jumped at the idea of having a chance to change the world. This is participatory democracy. It's, I'm a little strange. I like doing jury duty, too. So um, I'm maybe the only person I know like that. But uh, this, is, this is the way we can, we can explain technology and break it down in, in lay terms and uh, make sure we're making a difference. And it's just, it's just very exciting to do that. Government sets regulations that has a lot of impact on what we do and how we do it. And if we want to be successful, we have to be part of that conversation so that on important issues like on privacy or growing our companies or things in terms of bandwidth spectrum and understanding how what they do could have a big impact on what we're able to do, you know, especially the areas of privacy. You know, we all want to take care of our customers' data and do it responsibly. 
but we want to make sure that the regulations that govern that are such that we can still innovate, create great applications that people want to use with their consent and not run afoul of the things that the government's doing. That was Bill Wagner, a 25-year veteran of the software industry. Bill mentioned privacy, a very hot topic in Washington, D.C. these days. Rightly so, citizens want to protect their children from apps that collect information from them, such as their home address, their age, or even their favorite breakfast cereal. This real and legitimate concern brought the privacy issue to the attention of lawmakers who, in trying to understand the issue, enacted a law called COPPA, C-O-P-P-A, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. COPPA went into effect in April 2000, applying regulations to any entity that collects information from any child under 13 years of age, including the requirement of apps to publish a privacy policy and to get parental consent before collecting information. Information as seemingly benign as their age. Here's Jonathan Zook. And it was a very short, tightly worded law, and then it was handed over to the Federal Trade Commission to turn it into a regulation, right? Mm-hmm. And then it became the size of a phone book. And right off the bat, just compliance with that single regulation cost each business around $200,000 a year. If you think about the dawn of the Internet, if you were clearing $10,000 a year, you were having a successful enterprise online. And so a lot of businesses were put out of business that were legitimately trying to create content for children. So finding that balance and understanding how to allow the technology to thrive and not regulating out of existence uh, is got to be the goal of our uh, of technologists generally and flying like this specifically. Let's face it, regulation is important, especially when it comes to our kids. But how can you write a law so it protects those kids and has a low impact on those entities who are collecting data from everyone? And everyone sometimes includes children. Here's Bill Wagner again. We do a lot of work with uh, particularly University of Michigan in terms of healthcare and some of their startups and some of the things they're doing. So those applications are they have to collect data about patients in order to help their treatment and help track how they're handling their treatments, how they're doing things, how they're improving. Um, you know, one very hopeful thing is some of the things that we're doing shows people when they're improving in very, very small ways and they can't see it. But the app can measure it and that you know, helps patients say if they're you know, recovering from an injury, recovering from a stroke and regaining mobility, they start to get a little bit more you know, confident that they can keep improving even though they can't see it. But the app can because we're collecting this data, we have to use it to be able to show them that improvement, you know, that has privacy concerns. And we need to talk to our government officials and point out that we're not trying to capture this data to, you know, to exploit people or to do that, but we're trying to capture this because it really helps them see what they're doing, helps them improve what they're doing, helps them get better, and they actually want that kind of feedback. If it's one of those situations where you have a general audience app, that means, uh, let's use the Angry Birds example. You write Angry Birds, and it's directed at everyone, and some children use it, and you sometimes collect information from children, but that you have no actual knowledge about it, then you're fine. The problem will be is if you actually get an email or other information that says, Hi, my name is Betty Sue, and I'm 12 then you need, to com- you need to make sure that you're complying with COPPA. Now, the good news is if Betty Sue emails you, you can answer her question. It's called a one-time email exception. You can answer her question. Then you must delete the email. And this is very critical 
Because if you start collecting Betty Sue's information and you keep it as part of your other existing database, then you are in violation of COPPA. And you can see some pretty serious fines and some pretty heavy punishments can be meted out by the Federal Trade Commission. So, so really, it's a narrow group of people who are affected, but the, uh, the effect is enormous. Because if you are one of those people who is collecting information on children under the age of 13, or let's say you have an application in which you'll, be having, you'll have actual knowledge of a bunch of kids under the age of 13. Maybe it's a health app. Maybe it's another app that does nutrition information. And so you collect some information that will tell you their, their birth date. Then you need to actually get what's called verifiable parental consent. That was Morgan Reed, the executive director of ACT. Okay, so we know that if we knowingly collect info from anyone under the age of 13, we need to publish a privacy policy and we need to have verifiable parental consent before we collect that information. How do we do that? And by the way, what should that privacy policy state? You need to have a privacy policy that states what you're collecting and what you do with that information. Now, let's assume that you are an app that is collecting that information. The minimum that you need to do after you have your privacy policy, because everyone needs one of those, is you need to have verifiable parental consent. And the easiest way to get that is through something called Email Plus. And your listeners can uh, easily look it up on the web. There are several service providers who do email plus. But in a nutshell, what it requires is that the email goes to the parent before the application is ever started or the website is ever enabled. And it notifies the parent of what information you'll be collecting, notifies the parents of what you do with the information once you've collected the information, and then affirmatively requires the parent to send an email back to you saying, it's okay for Betty Sue to use this website or mobile app. So I looked up Email Plus, expecting to find a product or a service, but had no such luck. It turns out that Email Plus is a methodology or a mechanism. I'm reading here from the FTC's COPPA FAC, which you can find at tinyurl.com slash COPPA FAC. That's C-O-P-P-A-F-A-Q. The Email Plus mechanism allows you to request, in the direct notice to the parent, that the parent provide consent in an email message. However, this mechanism requires that you take an additional step after receiving the parent's email consent to confirm that it was, in fact, the parent who provided consent. That's the plus factor. These additional steps include requesting in your initial email seeking consent that the parent include a phone or fax number or mailing address in the reply email so that you can follow up to confirm consent via telephone, fax, postal mail, or, after a reasonable time delay, sending another email to the parent to confirm consent. In this confirmatory email, you should include all the original information contained in the direct notice, inform the parent that he or she can revoke the consent, and inform the parent on how to revoke the consent. My first thought is, it doesn't seem too difficult to comply. Are, are these people just whining about having to write some more code? Well, as Morgan points out, your system may have to be totally redesigned from the top down to support any changes that have an effect on this data. Once you've gone through the Email Plus system, you need to keep track of all of that information, and you need to tie it to Betty Sue's record, and you need to be able to verify that, in fact, it was Betty Sue, that that when Betty Sue goes through your app and uses your program, that over time, you keep her attached to that verifiable parental consent. So the problem is less about that minimum level, but more about what you have to do in terms of storage and requirements of what you do afterwards, 
um, and keeping very close eye on what most of us in the developer community actually do, which is we use a lot of third-party SDKs. So, for example, uh, you need to make sure that if you swap your analytics provider, that you may have to go and get a new set of verifiable parental consent. You need to notify the parent again. Uh, if your analytics changes, if your ad provider changes, if you're providing third-party information to uh, a new network. Um, so your experimentation with your business model behind the scenes can have an impact on your COPPA compliance. So it's not entirely a one-and-done situation. And it's a big challenge because absent uh, you know, universal biometric IDs for everybody in the country, you can't really know w- whether you're talking to the parent of that child, etc. But you're supposed to just do the best that you can to gain parental consent before collecting information from children. If you're just putting out a product, you don't need to worry about it. But the minute that you're collecting birth dates or any kind of individual information or even a unique ID associated with a children's device or something like that, you need to get parental consent to collect it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who'd like to thank Microsoft MVPs and RDs for their hard work throughout the developer community. As an influencer in our industry, you deserve great tools and resources to use in your own development. Telerik is proud to offer all Microsoft MVPs and RDs a complimentary license of their Telerik Ultimate Collection plus a five-pack of Team Pulse. This means you get 16 of their developer tools and their Agile project management solution. All you need to do is fill out a short online form. Head to Telerik.com slash MVP register to claim your license today. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Mindy Douglas is co-founder of SoftwareSmoothie.com, where you can find kid and family-friendly apps. One of her concerns is teachers not being able to get the apps they need to interact with their kids because of COPPA compliance issues. Teachers a lot of times will ask questions about, well, how can I get reports? Um, I want a, a reading comprehension app, and I want reports sent to me at my desk about how my children are doing, and then I want to send those reports to parents. And, and all of these things raise a lot of questions about privacy and also how to use um, analytics and things like that to create better user experience for the kids. Okay. So this is a law that we must comply with now. I don't pretend to have a good answer to this problem. Maybe you can think of a way to protect children without making it so hard for software producers. One such technologist did just that. She is Denise Taylor, the co-founder of Privo, P-R-I-V-O dot com, which offers children's identity and parental consent management as a platform service provider for online services that have to comply with COPPA. She explains the subtle complexities involved with COPPA compliance. Currently, there's a COPPA 1.0 that we've been under for the last 10, 12 years. The FTC is making proposed changes, which are going to be pretty uh, cumbersome, I think, for folks. So let's talk in the COPPA 1.0 world. If you're collecting personal information from kids for a legitimate reason, you need to look on a sliding scale. Have I collected that information and I have exceptions? I can notify a parent or maybe I don't have to notify. Am I going to step up to an internal marketing relationship where I need to get some affirmative consent, which can be done at a fairly low level right now through what's called email plus? Or am I allowing community features or am I going to share data across platforms when you think about the guys who are creating a platform ID and then watching what happens across multiple properties? Or if you're going to let kids have user-generated content where they may share with the World Wide Web information about themselves, it requires a more reliable form of verifiable parental consent. Her answer to that is Privo. 
At Pribo.com, parents can access tools to manage their kids' personal information. Software producers can use their Privo lock service to access that information with 100% compliance with COPPA. And kids can get access to all of the fun websites that use their services, such as NASA, Optimus Prime, Clever Dragons, and Bunky Monkey. To me, Privo is a great example of technologists turning a law into an opportunity, making the internet safe for kids, and providing a valuable service to software producers. To me, this is the essence of what ACT is all about. COPPA, as much as it seems as an obstacle, isn't going anywhere. We need to step back, say, we've got to deal with this. As an industry, let's come up with solutions. We need a, a, an infrastructure play. We don't need parents verifying their identity over and over and over again, making it difficult for the onboarding of kids. Let's look to what Privo's uh, suggesting, a service, a minor's trust framework where the policies and rules of engagement are in place, relying parties, identity providers, consumers are buying into this framework uh, as they're onboarding to different services, and we can then process or create a parent credential, an attribute. I don't need to, as a parent, give you all my information just to say my kid can upload user-generated content. If I could promote a parent credential, or Johnny could have a Parent Connect account to get straight to mom for that consent. And I think that's possible. It's going to take the industry coming together and saying, we're going to solve this. We're not going to make safety a competitive differentiator. So the benefit for the consumer is protection for their kids. Protection for their kids and one-stop verification, one-stop establishment of my parental rights, my association with my little Johnny. And from that point forward, I'm in the permissions management game. Maybe I only need to be notified. Maybe I need to click a link. Maybe I need to step up because it's a more high value transaction that I'm uh, providing consent for outside of, you know, a virtual world or a game. And it wouldn't be a .NET Rocks if we didn't give away something in the middle of the show. And that's what we're doing right now. A Telerik Ultimate Collection goes to Sean Feldman. Congratulations, Sean. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Join the fan club. It's free, and you could win every show. You could win something. And every year, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology starting this December. So you don't want to miss that. In shows 736 and 740, we talked a lot about SOPA, the now-defunct Stop Online Piracy Act, and its partner PIPA, the Protect IP Act. Both of those bills had good intentions, but were flawed. Or so it seemed. I learned a few things about SOPA on my trip to D.C., I met with Senator Richard Blumenthal from my home state of Connecticut. He was a sponsor of SOPA. Do you remember us talking on show 736 about how your site could be shut down if someone left a comment on it with a link to Pirate Bay or some other pirate website? Well, that's not true. According to Jonathan Zook, SOPA was only targeting sites outside of the United States. Your U.S.-based site could not be shut down on a complaint by a third party. Apparently, there was a lot of misinformation in the air around SOPA and PIPA. So where did all of that misinformation come from? Scott Cleland says it was Google. Cleland is president of Precursor LLC and author of the book Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Incorporated. He makes a case for this in a commentary in Forbes magazine online at tinyurl slash googlekilledsopa. 
It's a compelling argument. His main points? Google copies the whole internet. Google is the world's leading internet navigation tool. Google has the world's worst theft and piracy track record. Google's business model fuels piracy. And Google's innovation model depends on property infringement. Hmm. Piracy is a real problem. I'm a consumer of bits, but I'm also a producer of two domains of bits. This domain, the podcast, is free like water, free like air. You're encouraged to copy it as much as possible. That's because we make our living selling ad space in the show. All is good. But I also produce bits that must be purchased to be legally enjoyed. Music and software. I want it to be easy for consumers to get the bits they want. And once they purchased it, I want them to be able to freely copy it wherever and however they see fit. How do we solve that problem? At the fly-in meeting, the day before we went to Capitol Hill, we heard a fascinating story from Tom Sidner, intellectual property fellow for ACT. Rosetta Stone, makers of language learning software, recently won an appellate victory in a case against Google, and they were finding more and more their software being advertised on Google by counterfeiters. Some of them were selling counterfeit Rosetta software with malware in it. Others were selling only partially, uh, properly uh, counterfeited Rosetta Stone software. So they had all these, all these people who were ripping off their products, but the one thing that, that most of them had in common is they included the correct customer service number for the real Rosetta Stone customer. So they're selling all these counterfeit products that don't work the way they're supposed to and sending the people uh, who are you know, tricked into buying them to Rosetta Stone. Takes big ones to do that. I also spoke with Sebastian Holst, Chief Marketing Officer for Preemptive Solutions, who built an app called Mobile Yogi, which he describes as basically a multimedia content delivery system. He discovered that there was another app that was competing for his number one spot in the app store. When he looked at it, it was all his content. Somebody had lifted my content from inside my app, put a thin veneer around it, uh, then published it as, as another publisher. Um, and uh, it was starting to compete with myself. And I was getting emails saying, why should I pay for your app when I can have this app? Uh, what did you do about it? Well, I filed my uh, papers with uh, content infringement with uh, the various marketplaces. Uh, and uh, it's actually it's happened twice. Same person under two different publisher names. And all what I realized actually the role of government. Because what happened was while the marketplace was willing to take that single app off, the individual, who, by the way, whose icon I found is a, is a masked criminal in front of a keyboard, so he makes no secret as to what he does you know, for fun, uh, but uh, he, completely unfettered. And that's why once it was pulled off, he just created a new publisher identity and did it again. So we need some, other, some mechanism um, either to, to enforce policy at the marketplace level uh, or perhaps ideally some level of, of reciprocality in terms of prosecuting so that people can't hide behind borders to do this kind of stuff. So there's clearly a situation in which regulation is not only a good idea, but it's necessary. And that's what I'm learning here. The answer isn't always no regulation. It's good regulation. And then one other story, which I think is interesting. Um, obviously, I mentioned I'm with Preemptive Solutions. We make Skater, protects intellectual property. Well, people crack our serial numbers. They, they hijack our our, our app. And I just looked using runtime intelligence, our analytics, which of course are inside our products, we detect tampering. So in the last 90 days, 
we've had 14,000 sessions of people running cracked DoffyScater. So think about this. It's people stealing code to protect the code that they steal and want to distribute, right? 81% 81 was from China, 13% from Vietnam. So let me guess. You sold one copy in China. Almost, maybe a little bit more, but nowhere close to fourteen thousand. Uh, it, it, it's it's amazing, and, and the thing is, um, and for those of, of your viewers and listeners that know us, um, you know we're we're part of a, a fairly professional manufacturing process. You don't start using Dafiskator, you don't start thinking about hardening your app until you're fairly well along and reasonably sophisticated. And so this shows not a mom and pop type of approach to piracy. This shows an orchestrated professional industry whose job is not only to steal your stuff but to produce it in a in a professional way, including protecting against other thieves. So think of the bank robber that leaves the bank with their money, your money. They still want to protect that money even though they stole it. So what's the answer to this problem? I don't have it. Do you have it? Have you thought about how to stop piracy in our business? If you have any thoughts at all about this, you should definitely get a hold of the people at ACT because you know what? They can put you in front of a senator and if it's a good idea, who knows where it goes. That's what it's all about. So we've talked about privacy and we've talked about piracy. Surely there are some less obvious problems out there that we can help resolve. There are. And if you're listening to this podcast right now on a mobile device, well, you're part of the problem. Basically, we need more bandwidth for mobile devices. Mobile apps are becoming the de facto medium via which business is done in the United States. The demand for bandwidth is going up. And the pie is getting bigger for sure, but there's only so much pie to go around before we run out. Huh? How can you run out of bandwidth? Well, we're used to thinking of bandwidth as being related to the amount of copper wire and fiber optic cable that we lay down, and the number of network switches and all the software to manage it. That's bandwidth. Earthbound bandwidth. With wireless, it's a different story. Wireless data rides on the back of radio waves, which have to operate in a particular segment of the radio frequency spectrum. In order to meet the bandwidth demands of tomorrow, more of that spectrum must be allocated for wireless data communications. Here's Andrew Brust. We're all kind of uh, suffering from a lack, not necessarily of spectrum, but of bandwidth and capacity on mobile networks. We experience that through limitations on how much data we can use in a month. We experience that in dropped calls and in choppy data connections. Part of that can be addressed by opening up more of the electromagnetic spectrum to cellular data services. Uh, And a lot of that spectrum right now is being used by over-the-air TV broadcast, uh, even though most people don't get their TV over the air anymore, but also just by various government use, which isn't even always disclosed. So there's more spectrum available, and the question is how can we deploy it a little bit more efficiently so that the economy that mobile applications create can can grow. Okay, you heard Andrew say that TV broadcasters use some and the government uses a bunch, but what are the numbers? How does it actually break down? Here's Morgan Reed. Between 10 and 15% of spectrum is held for digital phones and for this entire massive explosion of mobile apps, 10 to 15%. The government sits on 60%, which is an enormous, significant chunk. But here's the kicker. 
the broadcasters, good old-fashioned antenna television, sits on 30% of this vital natural resource. Wow. Broadcast television sits on 30% of available spectrum. And the government sits on 60%. What's in there? What are they using it for? Well, obviously the military has some use for it. That's good. But what else? The military is the one everyone talks about. But the National Park Service has spectrum. And while I love our national parks, I'm not really sure that the national parks sitting on spectrum is the best use of the spectrum. The military becomes a flashpoint for this discussion because it is something that's vital to America to have it. But I think there are a couple of things we can do. First, we can look at, um, we can look at asking the military to assess the value of that spectrum and making it part of their annual budget. Because uh, as we all know in our family lives, if we say this is what this is worth to us, how much money it is worth to us, and whether or not we make a choice in other things we do. Do we go on vacation, or do we have this? If the military has said, we can buy a new B-1 bomber, or we have this, I, I think we'll have a better sense of it. And as a taxpayer, if it is a valuable use to defending our country, then I'm absolutely, absolutely for them keeping that spectrum. But it's something, if it's on their balance books, it makes some difference. And the second part is the reality is it'll be very hard, and that's why we need to look at the other private allocation of spectrum, most of which is with broadcasters. And so from that perspective, um, the military and the government and uh, the park service is one area that we need to go after. But we also need to ask ourselves, is traditional broadcast television the best use of 30% of our public resource called Spectrum? So here's the question. How do you convince the government to reallocate Spectrum from, say, the military into civilian mobile phone and data service? I asked several of the technologists here the same question. Most of them said, that's a good question. <laughs> but I was impressed by Dave Norderer's answer. Dave's a software developer, an electrical engineer, and an amateur ham radio operator from Florida. Well, I, I think the thing is that there's, there's a stuck uh, status quo. And they've always done this uh, the same way for many years, but the technology has changed so dramatically. And so it's just a matter of just kicking their butt and getting them off the... Well, they'll make money. That's, that's the way to kick their butt. Here, you can make $10 billion if you go do this. So, so you think the more people uh, from our audience that get involved and act, let's say, do you think the better chance we have of actually getting more bandwidth? Oh, definitely. Because uh, one thing with these visits, you go around to the different offices, and they're really excited about talking to people that aren't lobbyists, that aren't corporate lawyers. Uh, one guy said to me, he said, you know, if, if somebody from Oracle walks in here, I know exactly what they're going to say, exactly what they think. But when the people from the districts actually come in and talk, you know, they have a totally different perspective on what's going on out there. So I think they really like that perspective. So there you have it, a direct correlation between your involvement in the political process and the quality of your cell phone data service. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. 
Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. And the last of the issues we talked about, but certainly not the least, is the failure of our educational system to produce technology-minded students. We need more STEM education. That stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. We need to change the way science is taught. We need to get kids into IT and programming when they are young. How is that done? Well, first let's take a look at the laws and the regulations currently on the books. No child left behind? What is that? Does it work? Now, I know this is a solvable problem. You, dear listener, are probably a mentor to someone. If you weren't, you wouldn't be a fan. Mentorship is the essence of .NET Rocks. It's developers helping developers understand technology. Well, on the last day when everyone was in meetings on Capitol Hill, I caught a few technologists in the halls and asked them how their meetings were going. Here's Julie Yak, who owns a small software development consulting company in Colorado Springs. She was there talking about education. Today I met with some folks from Senator Bennett's office in Colorado and also from a New Jersey senator's office. Part of it is giving out mandates without funding, and another part of it is that they just can't keep up with technology because there's so many laws holding them back. No Child Left Behind is a classic example that, you know, here you can't ever have a kid fail a grade. We have to always figure out when to move them forward, but we're not going to give you any funding or any ideas or ways to make that happen. And so they're releasing some states from that. Colorado, for example, was exempted from that recently because our kids aren't being left behind. We're very good at educating our, our kids. I work with our local schools in Colorado Springs at the high school and the school district, and I worked with them for their technology plan to include making the kids accountable for their own education, not just giving the teachers and the administrators responsibility, but having the kids own their own process. Um, we have better than 90% graduation rate in our public school. Wayne Beekman is co-founder of Information Concepts, a custom application development shop established in 1982. He's been in Washington, D.C. for 35 years. The ability for his business to grow is directly tied to his ability to hire great programmers, which he can't find. Well, Senator Warner actually has had some um, initiatives in place for trying to keep folks that come to come to the states to uh, get educated, to be able to stay. Uh, one of the biggest problems is with uh, folks come here, they get education, and then they're forced to leave the country. Uh, we need every programmer we can get. We're basically at a full employment situation with developers in the United States. Anyone who wants to get a job can get a job. Anyone who loves to program can get a job. So I'm really interested in, in making sure that the, uh, the undergraduate and graduate programmers are teaching programming languages. Uh, what I found out in the last few months is that the programs that I took, my master's program in information systems 30 years ago, had more programming classes than they teach today. Do you think that you being here did anything to help spur things on, or do you think that it was just an affirmation of what your senators are already doing? I don't think one day can influence much, but I think the, uh, the fly-in demonstrated that these issues are real and they affect not only folks in the local D.C. area, but it's a national issue. I'm really surprised because I always think all of our problems are local. So when I start to see that the problems are not only just affecting us but affecting other people, it, uh, it shows how important it is. 
you know, this is my one day of being a lobbyist for, you know, 35 years in D.C. I don't think I'm going to be able to make much of, uh, much of change. What I do see is how complex the problem is. And even though you have one initiative that you, you represent, that you have to respect all of the other issues that the senator is dealing with. Politicians perk up when you talk about two things, money and jobs. The two are related, of course, but if you can demonstrate that a particular policy will create jobs or that so many jobs have been created because of behaviors around technology, you've got something there. So how many jobs have been created as a result of the apps boom? Here's Pete Erickson, the founder of Disruptathon, a company that's dedicated to identifying disruptive innovations across industries. There have been 600,000 jobs created as a result of the apps revolution. Those are awesome jobs, high-paying jobs, and that's only going to continue to grow. And uh, what we need is more support for the entrepreneurs that are out there that want to get into the business. Pete had some ideas about disruptive innovation, and he considers it an actual science, something that can be measured and encouraged. Disruption, it gets thrown around a lot, but it's a real principle, it's a real theory and sort of a law of innovation that over time, as we innovate and we improve products, we open up ourselves to being disrupted eventually by a new entrant in the market. And as things improve over time and become, you know, more specialized for a tighter segment of the market, more people get left behind. That's called basically the underserved market. And something comes along and fills that void. The Wii video game is a great example of disruption. It served an entirely underserved market in the video game industry. How about the Kinect? The Kinect is basically disrupting the way that we, the way people interface with technologies and opens up even more underserved people that, that maybe can now interact with a technology that couldn't before. So, you know, disruptive innovation is, is very important. And it's my belief that our youths today need to be taught the theories of innovation in order to become better prepared to go out and and innovate, develop products. Um, So for that reason, I'm going to be teaching a high school class for the next five weeks at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts to sophomores in high school, not the graduating seniors. We're going to be teaching sophomores about the laws of disruption and the principles of disruption. And we're going to talk about the way disruptive innovation impacts the digital media space, the, the, the movie industry, the software industry, so that by the time these students get ready to go on to college, they have a very solid understanding of innovation. If you come down to D.C. for an act fly-in, you never know what to expect. Gary Muller works for Zico Corporation, developing third-party apps as well as apps for the public sector, police and fire departments in particular. Here he tells me about how much fun he had talking with Representative Charlie Bass from New Hampshire. He found out they both like to fly small aircraft. We had a great time, discussed a lot of issues for high-tech small businesses. I pulled out my iPad and showed him the fire tab and police pad apps that we built for public sector. And he showed me the uh, iPad that he has and his flying apps and his backgammon app because he's a big backgammon player. And we talked about some of the issues including bandwidth, spectrum, privacy of the apps, both third-party, and just had a great time. He's certainly a gentleman who understands the issues and an advocacy on our part. We saw eye-to-eye on just about everything. He understands the, the need to protect people, but at the same time give us the flexibility to develop applications and build our businesses. He's certainly aware of the need for more bandwidth and is doing what he can to help get that, uh, all of that bandwidth lit up and available for all of us. We ended up talking about technology more than the issues. I mean, he's, he's certainly wired in 
and he certainly understands the issues. So we had a lot more opportunity to talk about some of the fun stuff that we're both doing in the high-tech space. Later that night at dinner, I spoke to Miguel Castro about his experiences that day. And, you know, he was surprisingly wound up. He's usually so subdued. Um, I talked to seven different people. I had seven different meetings, both on the Senate side and the House side. Um, The most exciting one for me was finally meeting my own representative from my district. Um, I met with his staffer last year. We did this entire thing again, uh, you know, for the first time last year. It was was my first time. And uh, I didn't get to meet with the representative, met with the staffer. I've kept in touch during the year. And this time I returned and met with him and told him about some of the issues of the the hour and how important they are uh, that, that they get the information right. That's the key thing is that we're the experts. They're the politicians. Most of these guys are lawyers and doctors and politicians, just that. We're the ones that are in the belly of the beast doing this kind of stuff. And, oh yeah, the staffer remembered me. Well, I've kept in touch with him on a monthly basis. We exchange emails. Uh, the congressman met me for the first time, but it was, a, it was an awesome meeting. Um, and they were very, very receptive, which is really the important thing. It makes you feel like you really made a difference because he was very open about saying, these are parts of this that I don't understand. Why don't you explain it to me? And to have a legislator actually ask you to do that is fully admitting that I am in the politics business. I'm going to write the law. You're the one that's in the belly of the beast doing this kind of work. Tell me what it is that's important to you so you can do your job right and that we don't get it wrong when we pass legislation. And more importantly, in the area of privacy, um, which is uh, data gathering, that kind of thing, that we don't pass a uh, blanket legislation to punish everybody for the bad actions of some evildoers. So what I know about that is that um, you know, guys like Google and Facebook get away with serious privacy infractions, and it's the little guy that the legislation is going to hit. Well, we don't have the money to fight it. That's the thing. Google and Facebook have the unlimited resources. I mean, you're talking about the same issue with big tobacco, right? They, they know they're doing wrong, but they can just pump money into it and get away with it. Our weapon is information. Our weapon is our voice. And ACT, for whom I'm forever indebted to, gives us the opportunity to do this once a year and give the information to the people that are making these laws so that they can use it properly and that they don't pass blanket bills that are going to say, okay, we had a little bit of a privacy issue, let's just safeguard the entire internet. You know, you you can't idiot-proof the internet. You can't do it. I mean, we all know the cliche, if you build something that's idiot-proof, what are you going to result in? A better idiot. You know, That's very true. so it is. So we're trying to just basically give them the information. That's where the power. The, the another cliche: information is power, right? They're politicians, like I said. They're doctors or lawyers, mostly lawyers, and just professional politicians. We're software developers, and I'm going to go right back to the basics. We're computer programmers. Nobody wants to use that label anymore. It's an old-fashioned 1980s label. I'm a computer programmer. I'm writing programs, and I want to tell them what I need to do in order to get my software out there so that it works right, so that it's what the consumer wants, and that it's so that it's cost-effective. More importantly, sometimes free. Maybe I can get my revenue through advertising. Well, to do advertising so you don't have to pay for the software, I need to collect information. But that has to be done right, and it can't be over-regulated because of evildoers. So who among our Latinet Rocks listeners should be involved in that? I, I would actually say all of them. Um, we represent the developer voice on Capitol Hill. Um, there are not a lot of organizations doing that. Many that are are really just uh, looking at it from a startup point of view. We certainly include that, but we're also talking about concerns of the profession in general, whether you're an in-house developer or an uh, independent consultant, or if you're at a startup, we've kind of got your back. Um, and uh, that's, that's a unique thing. 
and if you can get involved at the forefront of it instead of just being a, a benefactor later on, um, that's, uh, that's all for the better. And better for you, probably there might be some opportunities for you as well. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, can't, it can't hurt to um, make a connection with a staffer from your local uh, representative's office or certainly your senator's office. Um, you know, if you're in business for yourself, as I am, the more people you meet, the better off you are. And if you meet people who know lots and lots of other people and influence them, well, there's nothing wrong with that either. I think the most important thing for developers and for all of us in this industry is the governments we work with at the state level and the national level are making policy that affects what we can do. And they're trying to do that before we've created new apps. If we don't give them some guidance and get involved so they can have a conversation with the people in our industry, you know, not just the really big names that they, they definitely talk to, but those of us running small and mid-sized companies, if we're not part of that conversation, all those policies get created without our input. And then it's all telling us what we can't do, which stops us from coming up with new ideas and creating new things. Yeah, I mean, we need uh, everybody uh, that is writing applications, whether they're writing them uh, to put out commercially or if they're writing them under contract for others. The reality is that if the environment for these applications to hit the market is not conducive, either because of, of too much uh, privacy uh, or security legislation or because there's insufficient bandwidth to deliver the value they need for their customers, it's going to stunt the growth of this amazing industry. And you need to come down and make your voice heard so that people know this problem is real and not just some statistic in a white paper. So there you have it. That's the story from Washington, D.C. This is Carl Franklin. And, uh, man, you know, I really enjoyed editing again. I haven't done this in a while. I'm getting a little rusty. Hey, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening, and remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com.